Have you ever, uh, ever noticed how the state of kind of your heart or the week it's been kind of affects how you view other people? Like perhaps it's been a good week for you and maybe you got some good news at work or, or you went on a first date and it went really, really well. And you pull up to a, a stoplight and the people in front of you just won't go. Or you're at the store and of course you pick the slow cashier where you know, you're kind of eyeing, okay, there's less people in this one, but this guy's going, and, you, and then you pick. Have you ever noticed like those times in which you kind of feel like you're in a good spot, you kind of take it easier on everyone else or you think what's best. But isn't the opposite true also though? Like if it's been like a hard week, a rough week, or, or the kids just aren't listening at home, whatever it is, then you, you go to the store and someone takes the last box of hamburger helper right before you and it's just like, oh man, if you only knew what I really want to do to you right now. You see, there's this kind of this thing within us as human beings that the state of our hearts sets the tables for others, doesn't it? Think about this for a moment. That uh, kind of the state of your heart, doesn't it kind of set the table for how you view, approach, or think of other people throughout your life? Whether it's a friend, a family member, a coworker, a boss, an employee, whoever it may be, kind of typically the state of your heart is going to more or less affect how you view that other person, at least to a certain degree. And the question I think that I want to ask and pose in front of all of us this morning is, should it be that way? Should the state of our heart always be one of the determining factors of perhaps how joyful or how Christ-like we can be throughout any given moment? So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, John. The, so it's the third book in the New Testament. Uh, one of the things we started this week is providing you sermon notes as well as extra study content called the message discussion guide that you can follow along with us. Where you pick up communion, you can gra- grab a physical copy. You can also follow along with us on the app or the website as well. We are in week five of this teaching series called At the Table, in which we're kind of looking at these different stories throughout Jesus's life in which he's at a table and something kind of big or drastic happens. And we started out week one with this idea of what would it look like if we had bigger tables and smaller fences throughout our life. And so we're going to pick up a story today in Luke chapter seven, and we're going to read the whole story in its entirety to see uh, kind of what Jesus is getting at this morning. Luke chapter seven, starting in verse 36, I invite you to follow along with me this morning. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman, now I'm going to pause here for a second. We do not know this woman's name, so I am going to refer to her as Nancy. Is that cool with everyone? All right, we're just going to call her Nancy and we're going to move on. All right, so Nancy was in that town who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him, weeping at his feet, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, (laughs) that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And Jesus tells this quick parable. He says, two people own money to a certain money lender. 
One owed him 500 denarii, or two years' salary, and the other owed him 50, two months' salary. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards Nancy and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman uh, from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests begin to among, say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to Nancy, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. To me, this is one of the most powerful moments in scripture. Here we have Jesus and he invited over into the home of a Pharisee. Simon kind of is beginning to hear about Jesus. He's probably heard the stories, heard the rumors, the rumblings about the miracles and everything that he's done, claiming to be a prophet, claiming to be the son of God. And so Simon, being a good Pharisee, a guy who would have been very religious, a good morally upright person, he would have been a leader in the ancient Jewish tradition, begins to think, I need to find out more about this guy for myself. I need to figure out about this Jesus guy who's kind of in our towns claiming that he is the son of the living God. And so he does what is sometimes referred to as like a social equal invitation. He invites Jesus over to his home in a way to say, okay, I'm kind of up here. And if you are who you are, you are at least equal to me, if not greater. Therefore, come to my home so that we can chat. Now, if this were to happen back then, it was a pretty common thing. You would be able to go and kind of overhear the conversation. Simon is inviting Jesus over to kind of suss him out a little bit. Kind of figure out, are you really who you claim to be? Do you actually have the ability to forgive sins like we've heard about you doing? Because what Simon is saying, as far as I know, that right begins to God and belongs to God alone. And that there is a rhythm and a pattern and a ritual tradition in how we go about living and living a forgived life. And as the story begins to unfold, we see two different people. We see the notorious Nancy and the prominent Pharisee. I don't know if you sensed it in this story, but I kind of sense that at that point in which, which Simon is kind of expressing, everyone else is kind of mumbling, what is she doing here? Right, like, does she not know whose house she's in? Is she completely unaware of where she is standing, this sinful woman? Now, we don't really know what her sinful choices were. Some people like to say that she was a woman of the street, so to speak. Well, that, you know, doesn't really make sense because, well, frankly, the gospels never shy away from defining someone's sin. The gospels are never afraid of saying this is the choices and the life pattern that someone has made. Because Jesus was never afraid of that. Jesus was never afraid of someone's life choices, their sinfulness, because that's why he came. 
And so in some ways, the woman being left anonymous begins to kind of paint a broader picture that perhaps this story isn't just about this one particular woman, perhaps this story encapsulates someone else. Well, still, what is she doing here? Does she just kind of like, you know, Jesus is at a table and she just kind of walks right in and be like, hey, I heard you guys are having dinner. Mind if I get in on some of this brisket? Smells pretty good outside. And then she's overcome. No, no, no. See, if, if someone was invited to a house and it was kind of like this big ordeal, people were allowed to come and kind of stand along the wall because that way they could at least hear or learn or engage in the conversation. And so this big conversation is being had. The town would have been all abuzz that Simon invited Jesus over to his home. And so there would have been many people who would have just showed up to be a fly on the wall, so to speak. Now, let me ask you a question, though. Like, I don't know if you, you maybe it was like a first date or, or those, those icebreaker questions. But you know that question, it's like, hey, if you could have dinner with anyone, past or present, living dead, who would it be? You ever heard that question, right? And so think about that for a moment. Who would it be? Just like for you, you know, who, who would that person be? If you could sit down with anyone and have dinner with them, who would you choose? You know, some people, it's like, well, man, I'm a, I'm a huge uh, fan of the Chicago Bulls, and so I would love to sit down with Michael Jordan or Scotty Pitt. Well, I'm a huge musician, and so I would love to have dinner with Mozart at some point. Uh, you know, and so, so who would that be for you? And then think about if you had that actual opportunity, how would you have held and regarded yourself and that person during that moment? You're probably being attentive. You're probably doing everything you can to make sure that you're listening to that they feel comfortable. You'd go up above and beyond every single opportunity to kind of show them that, man, I am here because of your prowess, because of your prestige. Just, I just want to learn and glean from you. And yet, that's kind of what's happening in this story. Here's Jesus. Now, we have the benefit of knowing this is someone that they weren't quite completely sure yet. But here's the son of the living God. We know him as, as the Messiah, the Savior. And Simon invites Jesus over, and that's about it. Simon says to Jesus, or Jesus says to Simon, you invited me over, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. You didn't give me a kiss. You didn't greet me in the standard greeting. You kind of just said, hey, man, let's kind of see what everything's all about. And yet Nancy comes. Think about how Nancy got there. She didn't just somehow walk in, didn't stumble, and she had to have at least heard about Jesus prior. She had to at least have an understanding about who Jesus was. She had to have this desire to be in his presence, perhaps even begin to believe and have faith in who he was even prior to being in this dinner situation with him. And so she learns where he is, and she, she resolutes, I'm going to go, and on the chance that he is there, I'm going to go stand in. But she, with the forethought, brings her alabaster jar of perfume, probably the one thing that she holds most dear in her life, probably a piece of inheritance passed down with her. And she takes it, and she makes her way, and she kind of stands against the wall with everyone else who's there to just observe and I could just picture her, she slowly just kind of, as the conversation goes, inches her way until she's right behind Jesus. And something that he is saying, something that he is teaching, brings her to tears. But I think these tears aren't tears of shame or guilt. I think they're tears of joy. 
their tears of faith. And she's left with the only response that she has. She begins to kneel at his feet, weeping and wiping his feet with her because she almost doesn't know what to do. But it's this, this, this grand gesture, this explanation of the love and the faith and the belief that she has in him. That her actions are this immediate expression of the faith and the love that she is feeling. The psalmist in Psalm 23 verse 5 kind of gives this foreshadowing. It says this. It says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Then get this, my cup overflows. In this moment, I believe Nancy is overflowing with faith that she doesn't know what to do except weep and weep and weep. And Jesus says, look, her faith that she has demonstrated, this love has made her well. See, the one thing that she never does in this story is she never asks for forgiveness. You notice how she never says, cool, 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 Jesus, now that you're paying attention to me, could you forgive me of my sin? She never turns and looks at the rest and says, guys, I just got a big question. I'm going to throw it out there. You know everything that I am. You know all that I've done. The whole town is very aware of who I am and what I've done and how I've chosen to live my life. Jesus, would you mind just kind of letting me move on and making me a forgiven person? She never asks. Rather, there is a demonstration of the faith that she already has. Why? It's because faith and forgiveness move from in to out. In our life as Christians, in our life as disciples, in our life as a church, faith and forgiveness ought to move from in to out. You see, what religion does, religion says, is clean up the outside first. If you do enough good to outweigh your bad, if you can kind of get a hold on the areas in life that have gotten a little under control, if you can minimize your sin and kind of raise up the level of your goodness, the outside can maybe, if you're lucky and you've worked hard enough and you've pulled yourself up by your bootstraps enough time, then, then perhaps, perhaps you can have a clean inward heart before God. That's what religion says. Faith says the exact opposite. That you cannot clean up your life to a point in which Jesus will love you because he already does. He has already forgiven you by his work on the cross. All it takes is faith and belief. But when that becomes our eternal, internal status, it then should become our outward, external expressions that who we are internally as grace-filled people ought to be expressed in how we live differently. And so Jesus kind of senses this in the room and he begins to kind of tell this short parable. He kind of senses this tension going on. What is she doing here? Doesn't she know whose houses that she's in, the presence of this guy? So Jesus just kind of says, hey, I got a quick story. Let's just say there was a a guy who owned a bank and, and, and there was two people And they both had debts they couldn't pay. It was just crippling. They had lost their job. It was kind of a rough season. The harvest didn't go as planted. And they couldn't pay it back. And the money lender just decided out of his, the goodness of his heart, I'm going to forgive both of them. One of them owed 500 denarii, two years salary. The other owed 52 months salary. And they both are forgiven. I'm going to consider it just paid Who is more loving in this moment? 
And Simon answers what we all would answer. Well, of course, the one who had been forgiven more. You have understood wisely, Jesus says. I think it's in this moment that the point of Jesus, the passage is getting made. That there is a difference between knowing you need forgiveness and actually pursuing it. There is a difference in knowing and understanding you need to be forgiven and actually doing what it takes to pursue that life of forgiveness. Let me put it this way. Let me give you this proclamation that is true for each and every one of us in the room this morning. God loves you. He cares for you. He has a plan for your life. But your sin, like my sin, has separated us from God, has created a debt that we cannot repay. But by the work of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, that those of us who express faith in Jesus are given this simple proclamation, you are forgiven, you are redeemed, you are restored. Let me say that to you again, you are forgiven by the work of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. But what's your answer to that? I know. Yeah, I'm aware. I've been going to church since I was a kid. You know, mom basically had me on a pew and I've been here ever since. Went to Sunday school like three times a week. You know, like we just had our own Sunday school on Wednesdays because we wanted to. It was the thing, right? Like, like you're just kind of like, yeah, yeah, I'm forgiven. I know I'm aware. I'm aware. I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm in the know. I understand that I am forgiven. Or is that proclamation, your answer of what stirs in your heart a sense of joy, of weeping, of this almost like uncontrollable sense of, I don't even know what to do with this. I'm aware that I need to be forgiven. I cannot be forgiven on my own strength, but Jesus has forgiven me. And so then you, you were just, I don't know. Like, and so do you start crying? Are you overjoyed? Does it stir something? You get the tingling, all the goosebumps going? Like, I don't know. Like, like, what is your response? What is our response to that proclamation? You are forgiven. Is it just, yeah, I know. I'm aware. I know. Or is it like this woman who's like, I don't know how to respond other than weep and cry and I don't have much to give. All I have is this jar of perfume and Jesus, I'm gonna give it to you. I'm gonna leave it at your feet because the difference between Nancy and Simon was not that one was aware that they were a sinner and the other was not. Rather, is one focused on how much they needed to be forgiven and the other focused on the forgiver himself. And isn't so much of our Christian life sometimes trying to, we think it's about minimizing my sin. If I can just clean it up a little bit more, do a little bit better on the outside, then, then, then I've figured it out. And this woman is being recognized for her faith and she is not focusing on her past. She is not focusing and trying to say, well, Jesus, trust me, just forgive me. I'm gonna do better in the future. I'm gonna leave that life behind. No, 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 she just comes to him overwhelmed by the forgiveness that she experiences. Her response is not just, I know. It's, Jesus, all I have to offer you is myself. 
See, I can only imagine the boldness and the courage it took for her just to stand in that room. The shame that she lived with over and over again that everyone in town was very aware of who she was. The extra shame she probably felt standing behind Jesus and her only response is, I don't care. I need to experience him. See, both Simon and the woman both knew and understood that they had sinned, that they had missed the mark of God's holiness. Both understood that sin causes guilt. Romans 3, we offer the wages of sin is death, that we are guilty before a holy and righteous God. They both understood that sin possesses power in life, that her life was literally defined and marked by her choices. And Simon the Pharisee understood this so much that he made life about being as disciplined and rigid as possible as to minimize his life of sin. But the difference between the two is one focused on how little they had sinned and the other focused on how much they had been forgiven. You see, the heart of faith is not focusing on how little we have sinned, rather on how much we have been forgiven. I think at times we, we, we misunderstand what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple. Let's go to church, try not to cuss that much. If you, if you can, give a little tithe here and there. Um, don't cheat on your spouse if you've got one, and boom, there you go, you're a Christian. We make it about how morally upright we can live. The reality of being a Christian isn't to focus on how well I can live or how few sins that I can commit after saying yes to Jesus. It's about how worship-filled can my life be. Because guilt doesn't help, right? That the most important and most powerful motivating factor in life is not always or simply do better, try harder, get it together, fix it for next time. The most motivating factor in life is love. Jesus doesn't look at you to say, well, if only you got a little bit better, I would love you. If only you didn't do that stuff last week, last year, 10 years ago, then maybe this relationship could be different. Jesus says, I'm very aware. And you're aware too. But I love you. I care for you. I died for you. You are forgiven. You are restored. You are redeemed. You are deeply loved. You have a purpose and a mission inside my kingdom and in my family. And that love will never change. That Jesus' love for us never goes up on how well we've been and it never goes down on how bad we've been. His love is always constant. It is supreme. It is always there no matter what. And that is what motivates us to live out this new life. That the heart of faith is not focusing on trying to sin less, rather that we have already been forgiven by a sinless Savior. I don't know about you, but to me, that's more motivating than anything else in the world that I don't have to prove my worth or my value in God's eyes, rather that Jesus did on my behalf. That's why the Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians chapter two, verses four and five, and then verse eight, he says, because of his great love for us, not your great effort, not your great work, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, and it is by grace you have been saved. Verse eight, for it is by your works. Nope, your effort, nope. 
For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So what does faith do in our life? It does three things quickly here this morning. Number one is faith removes guilt. Some of you need to hear that for the first time or be reminded of that for the thousandth time today, that faith in Jesus removes guilt. That faith literally means we are declared not guilty. Not that sin is overlooked, not that sin goes unpunished. Rather, someone else paid the debt on your behalf. And the person who paid that debt is Jesus and Jesus alone. Because in a very real sense, our orientation, how we view sin and forgiveness and God and scripture and everything together typically then begins to flow out of how we view other people. And the goal of living a faith-filled life is not to minimize your guilt, but to maximize his grace. Because when you maximize his grace, you are motivated by love and not guilt. Faith removes guilt. Number two, faith restores power. Sin has power in this life. Sin has power over your life and it has power over my life. Whether we know it or not, realize it or not, whether we give it that stronghold, it is always trying to lead you down a path away from God's goodness, his riches, his mercies, his blessings that he has for you in your life. But as soon as we step from sinner to saint, by the work of Jesus Christ, we are now gifted the Holy Spirit. As Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter two, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We are now given a new power and source in life. And so if you've ever been curious, well, how do I know if Jesus has restored my life, if I have a new power over how I am living and choosing and relationships and making decisions, I think it's pretty simple. Do you believe it's the Holy Spirit in you or not? Do you, do you believe time and time again that you have to make things right on your own or can you lean in and trust God's goodness? Because doesn't the text kind of lead us to think when Jesus is giving that parable that Simon thought he was the 50? Like, don't you kind of get that feel, right? When Jesus is telling the parable, there's this reluctancy in Simon being like, well, I guess the 500, now, we don't know, but I kind of get this sense that Simon's kind of feeling like, okay, well, yep, she's the 500. I'm the 50. Look at my life. Look at what I've done. Look at how I've cleaned it up. So I guess, though, yeah, she, technically she's more forgiven. And the truth of the matter is both the 500 and the 50 should be, be grateful for their forgiveness, but the reality of it is we're all that 500. We've all been given the gift of new life. We've been freed from the power of a spiritual debt, but not just so that we may be free, but that we have new life and hope and glory and to share it with others, that the power to live holy lives is motivated by his love living within us, not guilt. This, this, this afternoon as a church, we, we're gonna invite us all to take part to be an expression, this outward compassion of how we as a community of faith are motivated by love above all else. A call to share that goodness, how we have been forgiven much, therefore we can give much. But number three, and this is our last point for this morning, is faith in Jesus reverses relationships. It reverses relationships. 
It doesn't put them on hold. It doesn't necessarily fix them immediately, but it does reverse relationships. Disciples were one time arguing with Jesus, and they said, well, how many times should we forgive someone? And Jesus uh, was like, I don't know, how many do you think? They're like, I don't know, like seven times? He's like, no, 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 try 70 times, seven times. Be a forgiving person because you have first been forgiven. How you approach faith and how you approach forgiveness is probably going to set the table for how you view other people. If we view ourselves as the 50 in the parable, then anyone who is less than the, you know, is a 39 or a 20, we're going to be very impressed by them. But anyone who's a 500, we're going to kind of like, what are they doing here? And I don't want to be that type of church. I don't want us to be that type of Christians. I don't want us to be kind of picking and choosing and having the back of our mind a number. I want us to be the type of church where we just act like Nancy, where we just say, I don't really know how much I've been forgiven. I know it's a lot. And I don't know how much you have been forgiven, but I know it's a lot too. And so welcome to the family of God. Welcome to this church. Welcome to this place of worship. Welcome to the spot where the only thing we know how to do is bow and worship. Sometimes to weep, sometimes to shout in joy, sometimes to, to just give to Jesus everything. we have. Like to me, that is who I want us to be as a church and Christians. To to just stop trying to say, are we the 500? Are we the 50? Am I a 600? And kind of, well, like instead we just take a step back and say, it doesn't matter why you're here. What matters is that you are here and we're here together to worship, to pray, to study, to lift one another up. That's who I want us in this church to be. And so often, so, so, so regularly, I feel like we are this church. We are. We are. And so what would it look like, though, for, for that mentality of worship to bleed out of this room? What would it look like for that mentality to not just happen for the hour that you're sitting in one of these comfy green chairs, but to go with you throughout your week? Let me, let me close it with this as we get ready for our time of response this morning. Is what would you do if you knew you had one day left to live? What would you do? Right? You know, this, I feel like that's you know, kind of two big like icebreakers, right? If you could have dinner with anyone, what would you do? And then if you only had one day left to, to live, what would you do? You might be, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to Tahiti for the first time. Well, you're going to waste like two-thirds of your final day getting there, but okay. Oh, I'm going to just go and like have the best meal possible. I'm going to spend it with my family. I think sometimes we're like, well, you know, if I only had one day left to live, I'm going to walk into work, I'm going to tell my boss off, and then leave knowing, you know, I don't know, like, if you had one day left to live, what would you do? Now, we don't know how many days we have left. Jesus knew. Jesus had 24 hours left to live, and you know what he chose to do? He didn't build up his monetary worth. He didn't kind of tell people off. What Jesus chose to do with his final day was wash feet. He was with his disciples, one of them who was going to betray him, one who was going to deny him just a few hours later, and he got down on his hands and knees, and he began to wash feet. Why? That's because faith reverses relationships. That's who we're called to be. But it's only when the forgiveness of Jesus starts in here and makes its way to here.
I invite you to partake with me in communion this morning for our time of, of response. During this uh, kind of second half of our service, there's a couple ways you can respond to the good news of Christ. Number one, partake in communion with us. Number two, you can always give generously to our church. One of our values is being a church of life-giving generosity. You can do that on the app. They give and respond boxes. Uh, One of our other values is our compassion. Like I said, you're gonna have an opportunity to worship with us continued after service ends today. But let us never forget or take for granted where forgiveness comes from. And that's the work of Jesus and Jesus alone. You are forgiven. You are forgiven, you are loved, you are redeemed, and you are restored by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Let's remember that in worship together this morning. Last night with his disciples, Jesus held up the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Then he held up the cup, the wine, said, This is my blood shed for you. Take and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship Jesus this morning? Heavenly Father, we bow before you inwardly, spiritually, cognitively for your majesty and your glory and your goodness. We thank you for the forgiveness that you have gifted to us. Lord, we are that woman. We are aware of our sin and perhaps sometimes our sin has been so pervasive it has defined us, but God, you offer us new life through faith that when we bow at your feet, when we worship your holy name, when we give everything that we are and we have to you, God, you see, that is the sign of one whose faith and forgiveness has moved from in to out. I thank you for this church. Thank you for these people. So many of, of them, it's grateful to be their pastor to see how they live this out. For those of us who have that next step, to take the next step of faith and show that I am forgiven, I have faith, I am restored, I live a new life. May your spirit be that power and that source within us. May we love you and love others. It's your name that we pray. Amen.